0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this here very special episode of the Hashtag Pooligans Podcast. My name is Daniel, and you can follow me on the Twitters at D underscore Twit, and you can visit the show's Twitter, and since last week, the show's Facebook page, at Pooligans Pod, for episodes past, present, and future. Today, we bring you another exciting guest, whose name you've heard on Julie Mason's POTUS press pool many times. He frequently shares his unique insights into the allegedly shrinking Never Trump side of conservatives, which has recently coalesced, however, online at a new website that we're about to discuss on this episode. Before we get into the episode, two quick notes. After a brief lull over the past few weeks, the Pooligans podcast will be coming at you at a somewhat unprecedented pace in March. So hit that subscribe button if you feel so inclined, because we're going to keep them coming. Also, if, like me, you suffer from dyslexia and are thinking about speaking into a microphone, make sure you double and triple check your notes before jumping into a podcast with an important guest. As you're about to hear, I didn't heed my own advice and promptly misstated our guest's Twitter handle. It's at timo dc so disregard whatever it is that i'm about to say and only believe the guest as a teachable moment and a bold feat of self-flagellation i left my mistake in the recording hoping that it encourages others to do better than i did and with that disclaimer out of the way to the bumper and our exciting guest Everybody who's listened to the POTUS press pool already knows this gentleman. His name is Tim Miller. You can follow him on Twitter at Doc. Tim, how did your interest in politics start originally? Where, what woke that up?
1: Well, given the fact that I... Have sent 52,100 tweets. I, I would feel remiss not to correct you <laughs> to saying it's just, it's, and, and the fact that I hate Washington now, so I hate this as part of my Twitter brand, but it's actually Team ODC.
0: So, so if you want
1: to follow me, it's Timo ODC. I'm not a doc like Seb Gorka, no no doctorate <laughs> degree. So anyway, Team ODC, you can find all my great musings. How did I get into politics? I loved politics as a kid, I always loved it, and I was a lucky kid who didn't have to, you know, do summer work at McDonald's or whatever to pay the bills. Uh, I was lucky enough that my parents didn't make me do that and wanted me to uh, be able to have meaningful work in the summertime. Uh, Not that McDonald's isn't meaningful, but, you know, work that I was passionate about. And so I, I interned for a guy that ran for governor of Colorado named Bill Owens on his first election in 1998, and he ended up winning. I tell the story occasionally, I'll always, I never forget to look at, the, go back and look at the actual number. He ended up winning by something like 3000 votes. You know, the election went to three in the morning, He's running against the sitting lieutenant governor at the time, Gail Shetler. And for my you know little 17-year-old political nerd, this was heaven. Uh, I mean, I was hooked. A nail-biting election victory for a guy that I'd, I'd worked from from the start. And so Owens went on to run the Republican Governors Association in Washington. And I interned there while I was in school. You know, the rest is sort of uh, my, my gypsy career of politics. So I got sent around to do campaigns in a bunch of states
0: campaigns in a bunch of states and then you were uh, with the rnc for a while
1: yes yes so i I did a bunch of campaigns out in various states in america iowa virginia delaware colorado elsewhere and then uh, moved back to dc after john i was john huntsman's spokesperson for his (laughs) short-lived presidential bid in 2012 and then i basically threw myself on the mercy of the court with the romney Clan and, and begged them to welcome me on board, and I, I did an apology tour for my the mean things I'd said about Mitt uh, during the primary, and they were gracious enough to find me a spot at the RNC, and so uh, I was at the RNC then in 2012 as their spokesperson, the Republican National Committee, and uh, then uh, I stayed on through the autopsy that analyzed the loss in twenty twelve that the committee did in early twenty
0: thirteen. Yeah, we're we're gonna later on, I think, do an autopsy of the autopsy. Okay,
1: great. That sounds that sounds
0: great. I find that fascinating to the to the present day, what happened with that autopsy or what didn't happen, actually. So I don't think a lot of people really intimately understand what your job involves day to day. Some people call it dark arts, some people call it comms. But and I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. So what would your work consist of on a daily basis?
1: Well, I did a little bit of both those things, I guess. on a, on on campaigns, my job on most campaigns was was really just being the, the spokesperson for the campaign. You know, I, I did various things on various campaigns, but the main the main job I had on most of the campaigns I worked on was as the spokesperson, and that was just, you know, interfacing with the media day to day working with the candidate on speeches, talking points and messaging, pitching stories, you know, positive stories about my candidate. This now is where we sort of transition towards the dark arts, negative stories about our <laughs> opponents. And that was something that I did with particular fervor and maybe gained a little bit of a reputation for when I was on campaigns.
0: How do the campaigns feel about that, Tim? Is that something where it's like, well, you know, Miller is taking care of that and we're just going to, and it's just going to appear out of nowhere and everybody will be grateful, but but Miller takes care of it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I mean, I think it's different. It's getting different, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this some somewhat in the sense that, you know, there's an increased, there's a heightened sensitivity and a heightened intensity around these sorts of things now, driven by Trump, and I and I and I think for good reason, you know, and in that in that regard, I, I have some regret. I don't know how I'd say regrets, but I, I definitely have some you know a different perspective on the work that I was doing you know 10 years ago uh, today than I do, did at the time but you know on the campaigns themselves there is a pretty you know it's pretty accepted that that all of the campaigns are doing this to each other some of them better than others um, and some of them more effectively than others and you know there are certain sometimes certain lines that are you know, not to be crossed that are unspoken. And, you know, if you're out there pitching stories about a candidate's wife, uh, that's going to ruffle some feathers, obviously, or, or or any other family members, you know, and I, I remember one time getting really mad at one of the, at this time, I was with McCain in 08 and getting mad at my, somebody who's a good friend of mine now, who was with Romney, uh, who I knew was behind a story that was, Accusing some McCain staffers of, of being anti-Mormon, which was, uh, you know, I thought below the belt and not true. So, you know, there are certain lines with this, but but it's mostly accepted. And so, what what happens within campaigns is, you know, you have a couple of of people. I was about to say guys, because it's usually men, uh, but there are some women in the in the research trade who are, you know, going through the history of of the other candidates, uh, looking at past speeches, looking at past quotes, looking at past tweets you know, looking at public filings from their businesses or, you know, legal filings, you know, voting history. And, you know, they, they put together what's called a research book and the top, you know, they take what are the, they call the top hits from that book and sort of deliver them to the comms team, which is, you know, where I came in. And then, you know, we would disseminate that, you know, to the media, no fingerprints. And, and it's part of this kind of, you know, what used to be sort of a game between the campaigns in the media where everybody was sort of in on the joke right and reporters you know the campaigns would provide this research to reporters reporters would write the story you know reporters would pretend like they got it (laughs) Um, they did this they, they did their you know reporting on their own and you know everybody moved on there's the, there's been a lot of light shown on that um, in the in in you know these last news cycles and and I think that in a lot a lot of times reporters are kind of less willing to do that but sometimes they still are you know that is you know that that was kind of that's kind of the nuts and bolts of how it happens I mean it intersects with the tops of the campaign usually because they want to know you know what the strategy is right I mean you know you're not just you know willy nilly sending out any negative information you can find about your opponents, uh, what you want to do is disseminate information that is going to, you know, reinforce the contrast between the two candidates and reinforce the themes of your campaign. And so, you know, there's a question about timing and all that. And so that that intersects with the campaign management and the ad team.
0: What I'm fascinated by in this context is how something that really is a job and a a job that all of the comm staff, the research team obviously takes very seriously you do that job in order to get your candidate a desired result the impact that it has on an election and on you guys as professionals versus the impact that it has on the audience the consumer the voter and the kind of fervor that it can create in voters is right now in america it feels like it's sharply like a sharp sharp divide it's very polarized obviously as you said earlier the guy from the Romney team you're now friends with. So for you guys, it's not really personal the way it is for voters, is it? Voters see in it something entirely different than what you guys see when you're looking at it.
1: Yeah, and that's that's sort of in line with kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I said that my, you know, I, I think that because of how toxic our politics has become, things that, information that we were, you know, putting out there about candidates, things that, you know, I, I, you know, felt like we're, you know, harming them. But, you know, we're tongue in cheek. Right. That we didn't really take that seriously. That was all sort of part of the game. Right. And and I think this is a very you know, it's a common phrase. Right. When people in politics that you're, you know, in the game, in the mix. And, and it's a game for a lot of people who are involved. And, you know, it's it's no different than. Than you know having a basketball team and or you know rooting for the Patriots and being happy that Belichick was the thing that they might have been deflating the footballs <laughs> a little bit right like you know but there's there's no there's there's no consequence to you know I, I, who cares honestly in the big picture like whether the football deflation mattered or not I, I don't know I'm not an expert I don't have an opinion about that I, you know it could have been a non-controversy it could have been something real but. But in politics, and so, you know, and I, I'm sure that people who are in, in, in football have a different, you know, take look at that differently than, than we do as fans, right? And so...
0: All very important, yeah.
1: In politics, like, the, con- the, the gravity of it seems so great now in, in a way that, you know, when we were putting out some of this information throughout the... You know, McCain and Obama campaign, it didn't, uh, you know, it didn't feel the, the weight of the, you know, of the impact on the voters and the electorate, you know, didn't feel as great. And part of that is because of social media and part of it is because of our, how toxic and, and, and polarized our country is. And part of that is because, you know, Trump has taken all those things and exacerbated them uh, times, times, you know, uh, infinity, but through his style. And, you know, I do look back on some of that and think about things that, you know, piece of information that we would have put out there, you know, that, you know, then they could sort of get sent down this funnel, right? And like, I would you know, have a piece of oppo and give it to whatever a reporter at politico and they would write the story but then you know fox would pick up the story and put the worst possible light on it and then you know rush would pick up what fox wrote on and 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 change it actually to make it even seem more nefarious and wrong and then you know on social media people are tweeting are tweeting it in a way that is you know even more you know divisive and far removed from what actually happened you know that gives me you know pause about whether you know there is actually real harm being done by candidates and campaigns that are you know running efforts like that, and I think that the Democrats this time again this is going to be actually a very touchy campaign for them for that reason, and I, I think that there will be a big stigma on doing what was standard opposition research in 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 past campaigns on each other because the threat of trump has seemed to be so great and i think that there's a chance that people get, get ta- caught doing it it could boomerang on them worse than the information they put out but then in in trump and then when they run against trump you know trump has shown a willingness obviously to really go there and the, and, and be not be beholden by the truth or by you know, norms or anything, norms or yeah. any, anything right? Yeah. And so then as the Democrats, how do you combat that, you know, without turning into him, right? And that's and that's very challenging as well. So, yeah, I, look, I, I think that it's a fair, it's a very good point that the practitioners of this stuff take it a lot less seriously and see it a lot more as, you know, as you know, strategic as a game, more akin to you know, kind of a sports strategy, you know, then the public does. And there, and that has, you know, I, I, I do think had a negative impact on the discourse in a way that I, I don't feel very good about.
0: It's sort of an ugly game of telephone that you described earlier, where you release the information, then it goes to another instance, then another instance, and it sort of gets amplified and worsified as it goes on.
1: Look, I, 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 I'm not a Luddite or anti-social media. You know, I think that there are pluses and minuses to all these things. But, but this danger is especially potent now because you know look in there were gatekeepers
0: before where did they go tim what what happened the, to those gatekeepers where <laughs> the, did they go the, uh, the barbarians broke through the <laughs> i gates. was gonna say they came through they're flooding yeah and
1: so there were gatekeepers at the at the big newspapers and at the te- television stations that were you know in some ways in a negative way right in some ways in corrupt ways they were protecting people in power i mean there was a lot of stuff that uh, Kennedy and others did that were
0: conveniently swept under the rug. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and that's not good. But on the flip side, you know, it, it sort of prevented this kind of mass disinformation. And and look, there were always you know dirty tricks in campaigns. There was always flyers on the you know in the church parking lot and things of that nature. But this is on a scale that is completely different from that. You know, it's on a mass, 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 massive scale through social media and the twenty-four hour news cycle. And I I think that you hit on basically two separate things that have exacerbated this. One is from a social media standpoint, there is a, you know, lack of accountability. There is an incentive to be the most outlandish. There's an incentive to, to confirm the priors of the people that you're speaking to, you know, in the, uh, in the most base ways. Right. And so you, you just look at it. I mean look at the stats on which Twitter feeds, which Facebook feeds do the best. You know, on the right, it's these char- the Charlie Turks of the world. You know, on the left, you see, you know, these, you know, the uh, Eric Garland's, right? Like, like the Krasenstein's, you know, like this, this is not a se- these are not serious policy discussions. I don't mean to equate the two necessarily or say one's better than the other. It's just if you look at how information is not quite accurate gets put out there, it's because that's pe- the, the, they're giving the people what they want, you know, and, and so they don't need to go through the New York Times or NBC or anybody else in order to to do it. So, you know, social media and, and then, you know, the other aspect of social media is that we are all we're self-selecting. Right. And so, you know, people aren't getting information. You would think that because the Internet has given you access to all of the, these different sources and all <laughs> these different pieces of information, then that would mean that people would hear from more outlets. But it's the opposite. People are hearing from less because they can self-select, you know. And so they're, you know, somebody who you know, lives in Sioux City, Iowa, who is a conservative uh, that is on Facebook or on Twitter. Like they're seeing a completely different uh, world than what is being seen by, you know, a liberal who is, you know, in college at, like, a liberal arts school in the Northeast, right? Like, the, these two people are living on completely different planets in, in, what the, in the information that they're learning about our government. And both of them are getting misinformation, you know, the conservative in Iowa who's just getting their stuff from Facebook, getting much more misinformation, but they're both getting misinformation. And, and there there is not any common information that's happening between the two. Like, they're not both then at the end of the night sitting down to watch, watch Walter Cronkite, right? Like, they're all just... They're Getting information from people that confirm their worst fears about the other side, their worst grievances, so that's a massive problem. And then, the secondly, to the 24 hour news cycle, and this is this is you know, these flames are fanned by people like me, so it's a symbiotic relationship, right? But their they're bias, you know, conservatives, you know, my fellow conservatives like always like to complain about their liberal bias, and there is, I, I it's not. It's not wrong to say that more reporters are Democrat than Republican, and that 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 seeps into their coverage from time to time. But their biggest bias is towards conflict and towards new, you know, towards new news and towards change, and so in, in and towards you know, critic critique. And so, if, if you you know are watching, you know, CNN or Fox on a given day, uh, particularly now in the Trump era, you know, you never get the feeling that like. This thing that they're covering is just oh, okay, or it's kind of good, or it's marginally bad, right? Like everything is scandal, everything is the worst, everything is, you know, it's horrible, but to keep people coming in, right? And they, they need new new dramas and new outrages in order to stoke their audiences. And inevitably, they're even, even with as much outrage as Trump is stirring up that's legitimate, th- there's not enough to fill all the time. Right. So they make up stuff. And this is where the why Trump's fake news message resonates and and why it's so insidious, because there is a hint of truth to it. Right. Like, like CNN and MSNBC have gotten caught, you know, uh, buying B.S. stories about Trump because they want to believe the worst. Fox obviously spreads news that is not true fairly frequently I and mean, we just learned this week that fox killed the story about stormy daniels before the election you know sean hannity used to talk about seth rich killing you know getting killed by hillary right i mean mm-hmm. it's insane stuff but but it's because they got to fill the day um, so so that is all is also a massive problem and i i just i don't know what the fix is to it and there, there is no signs that that the media has learned any lessons from trump's rise And has made any changes that are positive um, to, to sort of minimize the ability of people like Trump who use their use this constant outrage for ill to work in the future.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right when you say it's extremely symbiotic, whether you're for Trump or against Trump. The one thing that you're getting is you're getting constant buffet of whatever it is that your readers or viewers would like to hear about. The question is how you serve it, but it's served on both sides of the buffet equally successfully, I would say.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, Trump makes that possible, of course. But I feel like it's hard to imagine how we get this genie back in the bottle.
0: I was going to ask you, Tim, and are you saying that you don't have any answers as to how we're going to stick that genie back in the bottle and put a cute little cork in it? No?
1: <laughs> no. I mean, look, I think Trump is unique in a, in in a few ways you know one he is uniquely shameless <laughs> and yep. so you know i think that his willingness to prey on the worst angels you know the, the worst parts of, our, of human nature is unique and so some of this stuff when trump is gone will naturally abate somewhat but but the but the underlying symptom like the underlying issues that trump was able to take advantage of in our in our political discourse and in our news media aren't changing for at all uh, and and certainly aren't changing for the better and you know there is no i i don't think any signs out there that since 2015 since 2016 the major news organizations and the major social media platforms are making changes to foster you know more healthy more positive you know more substantive serious you know potus press pool style debates right that's not what's happening and and so
0: what would those look like in your in your opinion tim i i this is, of course, something that a lot of POTUS Presspool listeners, as you just said, tell Julie frequently that they're really excited that there is a place where both conservatives and mainstream media is welcome. It's mostly journalists. The show itself is really straight down the middle. I think what you were saying earlier is, uh, on both sides, there used to be whatever, whatever you want to call it, oppo stuff, but the middle, the Walter Cronkite types, acted as a sieve. Right, that that whole thing was sieved through, and then you ended up with whatever the opinion in the middle was. That sieve seems to have almost thoroughly disappeared. Yeah,
1: and at some point, I guess at some point, it's possible that we can just pull this rubber band, you know, to each extreme for so long that it, that it pops. That it
0: snaps. Yeah. And
1: there's some some ex- exogenous event that kind of sort of uh, re reorients, you know, the tectonic plates underneath our politics. But I, I don't know what that is. Well, I think that there are the small steps this is, this is a problem. This is where my conservative, you know, free market capitalism uh, comes into uh, Mm -hmm. conflict with my, with the solutions here. And so, you know, I I think that maybe there's some technocratic solutions you could come to, but a a lot of this has to be self-policed by the news companies and the big social media companies. I got, it's not like, I don't think that a board of Bureaucrats in Washington doing oversight over the news is the solution. I mean, that's that's very dangerous, as we've seen in other countries, right? So the, what this what what needs to happen is the social social media companies need to disincentivize on their platforms the types of you know a disinformation, but b just you can have outrage bait, clickbait, and that is against their business interests, right? Like they want people to be mad, they want people to be checking back in uh, and getting upset. But you know, the the frankly, the front page of these big social media companies need an editor. But uh, I, I I don't I find it hard to believe that they're going to do that.
0: What did you think about Facebook's announcement that they are now suddenly going to be standing for privacy? They're going to focus on content that disappears after a certain amount of time. They don't know how to, like you just said, they have no idea how to incentivize it or how to monetize the situation, but that is what they're about to do, and they are now about privacy.
1: Well, look, I mean, Facebook has, can do a lot of things. You know, I mean, look, they're a massive company. Like you reach, you reach, you know, their economies of scale, right? You reach a certain size where it's hard to kind of manage everything that is under you, right? But they have massive resources uh, and able to be able to make these changes if they choose to. I, you know, I think it remains to be seen. The problem is that there, there is... A, the more control they take over the content that's going to be on the platform, the more criticism that they're going to receive over it right And so you know they have to find this delicate ba- delicate balance where you know before I think that there's this utopian kind of Silicon Valley seasteading libertarian vision that like we will just let the marketplace of ideas exist and the cream will rise to the top
0: apparently and, not you know,
1: yeah exactly <laughs> wrong the marketplace of ideas is a hideous disgusting cesspool yeah yes it's, it's and, at the uh, bottom yep. yes and we, there should not be a the marketplace of ideas is a bad idea <laughs> <laughs> the, the ideas should be uh, the ideas should be perpetrated by people who are schooled in in, in, in in ideas like this is where my elitism comes out right uh and so But the problem is, and then Facebook comes in, then they get accusations of bias. Then people boycott the platform. Then they're, you know, then they open themselves up to lawsuits about, you know, suppressing information. So there's not an easy answer to this. They have to figure out a way working with regulators and working with You know, conservatives really, you know, who I think are rightly right to be concerned that they would be, you know, shut out in such a such a system. But they they need to change the algorithms in a way that put more control in the hand of humans. This is this is on the massive scale that they're doing it. This is very, you know, this is not an easy fix. But it's not just look. and, And here's the thing: it's not like editors are a panacea, right? All I have to do is click on cable news. They've got editors. And it's not exactly like the Algonquin Wrong people there on MSNBC or CNN or Fox these days either. Here's the thing: even if there was not good, good, even if there were good actors, right? Even if CNN, even if Jeff Zucker said, "I don't care anymore about whether we're going to make money, and, and, and <laughs> we're just going to replace our entire lineup with very serious, deep dive investigative journalism and you know thoughtful debate and blah blah blah." Then somebody else would, do, right? Like then somebody else would would come along and displace them and give the people what they want, which is you know outrage candy. So you know some of this stuff has to you know happen from the ground up and from communities. I think a lot of times everybody you know sort of says, well, what's you know what is Washington going to do about it? And there might not be a solution to this, right? And and what we need the solution might be you know more is 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 more on the community level and trying to reorient you know, our, our kind of civic debate and our attachments to one another. And that's a very long, long, long term thing. And, you know, may, maybe the honest would be the only way to fix it is to have a crisis happen that, that sort of forces it, thrusts it upon us. But uh, you might have thought that crisis would have been Donald Trump becoming the president, but it doesn't seem so.
0: No, ac- actually, that appears to have just further polarized everybody. Now, some people are having a great time hogging the tomatoes and launching them from every possible angle. But what I wanted to ask you about, too, is one of the solutions, apparently, is a new website called The Bulwark. Julie was very pleased when that came into being. Uh, All the listeners were really interested what was going on over there. Where are you at the moment as a conservative in the United States.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy that they spun off the bulwark, and, and I think that there have been people who have obviously, like it, with anything, there are cri- criticisms about it, and I think it's still evolving and, and expanding, and I, I certainly don't think it's a solution to our you know uh, political discourse problems, but what it is is a, is a place for conservatives, uh, for center-right people, for moderates, for center-left people, who are looking for a fact-based and rational conversation about what is happening in the news and are interested in, to- in talking about it. And, and, and I think it, it can be, you know, grow into a place for community building around that. And, and 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 frankly, maybe just a place where, you know, people who feel alienated by our politics can feel connected, can read something that's, that makes them think, yes, okay, I'm not alone out here. Somebody else is thinking like this. And and that's important. And I, I think that there were big swaths of the country that was unserved, that was not served by our previous political dichotomy between Democrats and Republicans, and and, and they were largely sort of blue-collar working class voters who didn't have a lot of voices in our national politics. It was they were, you know, populist and, and oftentimes socially conservative but fiscally liberal. And, and there aren't a lot of pundits on TV that shared their views. And, and Ross Perot was really the only candidate that they've had recently that shared their views. And so Trump channeled that, right, and, and in a very negative way. And so I think a lesson learned from that should have been that, that we should have been more conscious about Try, uh, opening a healthy discourse and and recognizing those concerns and trying to address the concerns of those communities, you know, rather than shunning them. But they were shunned, and 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 now I think as the tectonic plates are shifting in politics, it's 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 people who are overrepresented in media, people like me, you know, who are uh, more moderate conservatives that are are going to find themselves uh, essentially put, without political representation for a while. And I just think that that's reality. Uh, it is not a It's not a group that is small. You know, look, Donald Trump, there was a poll in New Hampshire the other day that he had 68% support among Republicans. Well, that's certainly enough to win. But 30% of Republicans, you know, if Republicans are 30% of the country and and 30% of Republicans don't like Trump, that's 9% of the country. You know, that's 30 million people. Right. That's that's a lot of people. So 30 million people, if they don't live in the right states, might not be enough to to have any real political power in our two party system, but they certainly have enough power to shape the parties. And, you know, and, and, and I think that in some ways, hopefully it can grow into a political block that can have some power to to bring both of the parties back to the center at times. I think you, they, it, you saw the power of this group in 2018. I, I don't know that Nancy Pelosi would be speaker if it was not for, you know, moderate suburban Republicans.
0: I mean, I live in, in California. We saw it here in Orange County. Orange County was like, OK, and done.
1: Yeah. So that is that's power in a way, even though it's not none of them you know, one representation. But, you know, the Democrats that won in these districts are going to have to you know, represents their constituents that helped them win. Right. And so, you know, if you can do that in Republican districts and force, you know, some of these, uh, you know, Republican candidates who have been moving further and further to the right back to the center, that's a good thing. Um, and and I, I do hope that there'll be a presidential primary candidate that represents that group. I think it will be a tough battle and obviously they would be an underdog, but I don't, I don't know that it would be, you know, any more hopeless than the idea that reality TV show hosts would become the president.
0: Yeah, that's, I think a lot of people are thinking that, particularly on the Democratic side, I think there's a lot of people who have come to that exact conclusion. On the Republican side, maybe slowly there's a spring and people like Mitt Romney are like slowly poking their heads back out of their you know, little dugout and they're like, oh, maybe I'll just come back in here. I won't speak a lot and I won't say a lot about a lot of things, but I'll just be here in case something goes down how many of those republican politicians do you think are there right now and is that strategy of at least for the time being keeping their head down really the only option that they have at the moment
1: there are a fair amount of republicans who 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 don't who are sort of putting their hand in their ears and get passing some judges that they like and some tax that they like and hoping everything goes back to normal I don't love, I obviously uh, completely disagree with the strategy. I think that I don't think it's inevitable that things go back to normal in our party once Trump goes away. I I, I think that it is more likely than not that Trump's brand of conservatism is the new normal in the Republican Party. And so if you just put your hand in your ears and go along with it, then eventually you become part of it. I do understand the political sacrifices and 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 strategic uh positioning that you have to engage in if you're in politics like i got you know some liberals say oh ben sass like he does nothing why doesn't he vote against kavanaugh and it's just like well well ben sass if anybody else was president, he would have supported Kavanaugh, and 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 he would have supported Gorsuch. So why shouldn't he? Not, right. So uh, I I disagree with that. That like you have to go full resistance. But I, I do wish that even Sass and Romney, and and some of the others who are even more silent than them, would would step out strong more strongly from time to time. I do not think that it's true. There's this kind of, there's this. I, I don't know where this came from. There's this conventional wisdom that that you cannot that the Republicans in Congress cannot get tax reform and judges and all the other things that they want and criticize Donald Trump at the same time. Why not? I I don't understand. I don't understand why not. nobody's ever tried it. Everybody says that it's not possible, but nobody's ever tried it. I, I don't. I think that they could do
0: both. Wasn't Lindsey Graham about to do something like that, but then decided that, uh, in fact, what he really liked was to be in the mix. He, he's he's like that that line from Hamilton, right? He wants to be in the room when it happens, and 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 if you're not, then who are you in politics? And I think a lot of people came to that particular conclusion. It seems that
1: is exactly right, and that is really insightful, because I'll tell you that a lot of people don't understand that who are outside of politics. And I get asked, why is so and so doing this? Why is so and so doing that? You know, there must be money. You know, you see this on the left, there's a lot of times they must be bought off and or, you know, some other conspiracy. No, like the answer is simple. And this, it would be true, you know, hopefully my good friends in the Democratic Party, if they ever get taken over by somebody as loathsome as Donald Trump, will have a little bit more backbone than, than my side did. But there will still be plenty of people who do what we saw, because people in Washington, what they like is to be in the mix. That's all that matters. It's not about money. It's about feeling important. It's about being able to go to your whatever social setting that you you know like to partake in and tell people anecdotes about oh the president told me or the chief of staff told me or i told the chief of staff or i told the president that's it it's as simple as that and that's why Lindsay is doing this you know and he can justify it all he wants to come up with all the other you know fake hands to patriotism and all the other bullshit that that they say for why they're doing this but they're they're all doing it for one simple reason they want to be in the mix. There's maybe a small, small, tiny, tiny, tiny portion of people who ha- are certainly who are passionate about a certain issue. And they're doing it because they want to advance that issue. Uh, you know, I, I don't begrudge any of them. But 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 for the overwhelming majority, it's about ego stroking being in the mix. That's it being in the room where it happens.
0: I was fascinated by what you said earlier, because this is an argument that we've had on this podcast with various people, including Doug High, what happens to the GOP once Trump is gone? Are there, are there ideas left? Is there something left? Is there a constituency left? And I was particularly struck by that watching CPAC. Uh, that is, and I don't mean to insult any of our conservative listeners if we have them. I, I think we have a few of them. As an observer, it seemed a little bit culty. And what I take away from that is that once Trump is gone, the chance of there being rubber banding and the chance of everything snapping back to normal is relatively low. In my, as I said, uneducated view, Trump will be, even when he's gone, the kingmaker of that GOP for a while to come. And that terror is not really going to end. If you if you perceive that as a terror, I don't think that will end. Am I too, too pessimistic and too naive in that respect, or or what is your view?
1: No, you are not. I'm one of the most pessimistic people you'll encounter. So so no, I, I do not believe you to be too pessimistic. I agree. Some people they like to think that like Trump will go away and then it's like he will disappear and I don't know go to the Bermuda Triangle or something. But <laughs> like unless he dies, he's still going to be tweeting, still going to be on Fox and Friends. So, uh, yeah, he will still cast a huge shadow. He's not gonna, it's not like he's going to do what WW did. So, and then secondly, Trump has, has changed the makeup of the Republican Party. Like, what types of humans are in it? Maybe not permanently, but certainly for a while, and certainly it takes time to change the makeup of the party back. So who has left the party? College-educated, suburban women? Uh, in particular, and also some college-educated men. That's that's it. That's who's left the party. Who's come into the party? Populist, non-ideological, non-college men mostly. Some women.
0: Off the white, off the white propensity mostly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: white. So this is if you thought the Republican Party in 2014 or 2012 was too white and too whatever radical. Like, it's gotten, it's gotten mar- markedly worse. And so it's not like these people who have left the party or who have come into the party the day Trump leaves will just go back to how they were. That's still the party. And so those are the people that will decide the next nominee. And so, yeah, I mean, look, I think that the best case scenario is that there is some sort of, you know, synthesis between Trumpism and, you know, Reaganism, if you will. Uh, and some candidate is able to, you know, kind of take... You know, some parts of Trump's agenda, things I wouldn't agree with, but, you know, maybe some protectionism and maybe less lenient views on immigration without the racism, and combine that with some of the more, you know, traditional Republican views and come up with sort of a serious type of party that, you know, maybe is less, look, looks less like I would have liked it to look, but is still you know, but is not, you know, a complete clown car like the current one is, I I, I guess that I think that's honestly, I think that's the best case scenario, barring uh, really what's probably the best case scenario is Trump totally crashing and burning in such a way where his, you know, popularity numbers sink, you know, into the teens. And, you know, there's a kind of rebellion back against him. But uh, that would have for him to do that, that would mean that there are ugly consequences for the whole country, you know, some sort of recession or you know other dramatic misstep that caused serious uh, problems, and so obviously that's not something you root for. You know, otherwise, I think that it is just as likely as the sort of synthesis scenario that I laid out that the party gets even more co-opted by the lunatics, right? And that it's you know Tucker Carlson is the next nominee. Like I, I really don't think that that's crazy.
0: Oh, I just got the shivers. Yeah, no, yeah, that, d- that is that is definitely not something that anybody would like. And yet, as you said earlier, we're in a situation where the Democrats, having said everything that we just talked about and, and described the situation that we're in, the Democrats still now early, it's still early, they're putting up candidates there, but there is going to have to be a primary. There's going to be mudslinging of some denomination, and... And the president is, if he's good at one very specific thing, it's taking other people's mudslinging and slinging it even harder, making it worse, right? That is his, that is his very, very particular skill set. Now, who do you think, in, the, in your opinion, how is this damn field going to shake out? And do you have any prediction for what we will be looking at a year from now?
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, I do think the mudslinging will be maybe a little bit minimized because of the fear of the blowback. But here's the thing. The Democrats, I, I just, I'll, I'll get to the, to the 2020 guys here next. But I, it, it's worth saying that, like, these these radical House Democrats are not helping. Right. I mean, there is no uh, you know, there was no reason for all of these presidential candidates to have to come out for the Green New Deal if they weren't scared of their left flank. You know, look, I, I, this is not to say that you should do nothing about climate change, right? Like the the left has created this, you know, false dichotomy. It's like, it's it's very, it's it's authoritarian. It's kind of like what the Tea Party guys used to do. You know, it's like, you're either with me or you're against me. And it's like, well, I, I mean, some of this shit in the Green New Deal was insane. Uh, you know, and it's just not realistic to think that we're going to, you know, completely remove you know greenhouse gases in 10 years it's just like the, the amount of disruption that it would cause to the country is so great and then you look at what omar is saying you know omar uh, you know no matter what you think about her comments about israel then she's then she's tweeting today you know like uh, attacking megan mccain for her uh, deceased father and for his saying bomb bomb Iran and now uh, you know it's just like these this is this is a problem and and i know that's not a popular position on twitter but like these these young radical lefty democrats are a problem because what they're doing is going to seep up to the 2020 candidates they're going to feel like they need to support them, go along with them. And that's going to make Trump's life real easy on the mudslinging department. So, you know, I, I, I just, I, that is something Democrats have to be concerned about. Trump is not as weak as, as, as conventional wisdom on the left. And it feels to me in some ways that, that this, this bubble thinking that, that, that I thought everybody you know was big, everyone's big takeaway from 2016 was I need to get out of my bubble. And I need to know what's happening in the rest of this country because I didn't think there was any chance anybody would elect this buffoon. And now the bubble thinking is kind of back. You know, it's like he's so weak, and you know, any if you if you do anything to challenge the consensus view of the lefty blue check marks, then you're, you know, a Trump supporter or racist or whatever. It's like. It's it's a concern, and so anyway, that's a that's a long windup. But I, I mean, that my and I guess you can follow up on that, or I can give you my political analysis of the candidates.
0: I think there was a shiver when Sherrod Brown said, "You know what? I'd rather not." I think a shiver went through people because now that puts some pressure on Biden, and if Biden also decides that he'd rather not, which right now it it, it looks like he won't, but let's say he decides that he his family has been through enough, he has been through enough, he doesn't need that kind of scrutiny. On Hunter or or anyone else or himself, what happens or, wh- or what's your prediction? And then let let's let's go to yeah.
1: I don't know. You know, happens. somebody. I, I thought the shared thing was bad news for Democrats. I, I do. I do. I do think they they need somebody who can speak to these Obama Trump blue collar white voters. They're not gone from the Democratic Party forever, but but the party's acting like they are in a lot of ways, and so. Uh, I think that was bad news. I agree with you about Biden. I'm not bullish on Biden. I, I I think that you know he is he just has a lot of flaws as a candidate. Good person, but but can he survive a year of you know getting attacked from the left and you know his propensity for gaffes and his his old record, which is you know the DLC record, which is out of step with the current party. I I don't know. So I I look at I think that Kamala has the obviously has the best ability to unite the factions of the party. And I think that if you look at the democratic base, you have kind of the lefty, you know, socialist voters, you have young voters, largely college educated, you know, you have uh, black voters, you have Hispanic and Asian voters, you know, you just have kind of democratic, you know, sort of suburban democratic partisans. So of those categories, like Kamala can take from four, right? And so... Uh, I think that uh, gives her a big advantage. Um, I went to her announcement speech out here in Oakland, and, uh, you know, I have a little bit though of a Hillary-ish vibe to me.
0: She definitely— Seri- A um, Hillary-ish vibe? That's interesting. In what a way? A
1: little bit, just in the way that she's trying to check all the boxes, you know, kind of. I, st- I didn't come away really feeling like I know why Kamala is the right person to be president. Uh, you know, it felt a little generic she's got more time and you know hillary-ish i guess is not my go-to compliment but (laughs) you know i mean if you win hillary's (laughs) voters from 2016 then you're the nominee in a landslide right like so you know there there's there's that in some ways could be a good thing in the primary uh beto i think uh is just is very strong as a uh as a candidate on the stump i think he'll be much probably the best out of all of them i think I do think Warren is extremely good on the stump as well, but I I worry I just it seems like her baggage. I just think the Democrats are very concerned about electability and I, I just don't know if she can pass that electability threshold though. I think she's really good as a speaker. Uh Beto I think is probably the best besides her. Can he do well with black voters? I don't know. Is, is he gonna doesn't, get doesn't sort of crunched like... between the Bernie voters and the more moderate? I don't know.
0: To me and, and again outside observer i have no insider knowledge of anything but doesn't he seem slightly deflated at the moment he
1: does but i think that I, I think that the conventional wisdom mongers in dc you know they like to go on this roller coaster of who's hot and who's not And he was hot so he's obviously gonna have to go through a not phase and sometimes you can't recover from the not phase but i i don't i think that people who didn't go to see him in texas uh, who just sat at their desks in D.C., you know, sending tweets? Like, like it's easy. It's easy to think. I understand the conventional wisdom. It's like, oh, he was only hot because everybody hates Ted Cruz, and he benefited from that. And you know, it was just a lucky little run. And now, whatever, it's over. That's not true. I, I, he was very good. Like the his grassroots excitement about him was very organic and real. And and sure, he benefited from the fact that people hate Ted Cruz, but. But but he also stood on his own skill. And so I, I don't know, I just think it would be wrong to discount him until he can get out there in front of voters for a little while and see, see if he can get that mojo back. But uh, I, I, so, yeah, I would say him and him and Kamala seem to be the, the front runners to me at this point.
0: To me, it seems like the entire thing comes down to for the Democrats to Ross Belt versus Sun Belt. One of the two, you have to win, or it's game over. Do you think that a that either Beto or Kamala can do Ross belt or sound belt? If yes, why? And if no, why?
1: This is the problem for for all of them. It is not as easy as it sounds, you know, because you get drawn, you know, for in some ways, you know, you gain some from category one, you lose some from category two, right? Depending on what kind of campaign you run. I, I do think there's a way to get both. I think that the Democrats as, as a party are moving more towards the Sun Belt and that it will be hard for any nominee to offset that. That's why Sherrod would have been so good just to have that voice in there, forcing forcing the, the center of gravity back towards the Rust Belt a bit. But that said, you know, you only you don't need all the Rust Belt states, right? Like like if you, you can win the Sun Belt in Michigan. You know, Michigan, while it's a Rust Belt state you know hillary vastly vastly underperformed in detroit you know and so by driving up the black vote back to obama levels which you know you would think kamlo might be able to do or anybody really and doing better in the detroit suburbs which is very low bar since hillary did horribly <laughs> there yep like michigan should be winnable for any of them you know i think kind of a sunbelt plus michigan is a way to look at it and then you know looking at ohio constant and pennsylvania is a little bit of a tougher nut to crack you know beto really did better in the urban areas in texas i mean he's worked hard to try to reach out to these outer you know more ex-urban areas rural areas we'll see if that actually means anything with regards to votes i think it's tough in a national environment to do it but i I do think beto would be probably more mindful than kamala about trying to trying to talk to those voters but uh, i think we'd have to see I mean, kamala's not an idiot she's going to try but i like where is the can can it resonate I don't, you know, what is her message? Uh, Beto has actually, you know, has a little bit of a story to tell based on his kind of travels um, in rural parts of Texas. So TBD on that front, but I, I think there's just more of a general pull towards towards the Sun belt, of course. But none of it's going to be easy. I mean, look, Florida was, you know, the only state that didn't get caught up in the wave in 2018. So uh, you certainly can't look at Florida and think that's a slam dunk for Democrats next time.
0: I was actually going to ask you about that. Do you think that some of the success in the midterms is now a a, a hindrance in some ways to, I mean, minus, of course, the, the House where they're now doing some business, but As far as an electoral success, do you think it will be a hindrance because it makes it seem more attainable, too easy, thinking being that all of those districts that came through in the midterms would also come through in a general?
1: I think that there's a sense of that. I I, I would be very concerned if I was the left about this.
0: There is a very presumptuous attitude
1: about, you know, how can not everybody hate Trump and just look at how great we did in the midterms. And you know the midterms aren't really a signal of anything i mean obama got killed in the midterms and then won you know re-election right uh, you know this has happened you know historically very often where you know you lose don't do well in the first term midterms but then still get re-elected reagan you know i do think that's a concern i do think it's a concern about trying to how you talk to to these these voters and I think that there is a sense among like Democratic elites that everybody feels the way they do about Trump, which is total revulsion and disgust. And and they don't. And so, you know, if, if the midterms create a complacency or a feeling that, you know, all we do is turn out our voters, that's a problem. And, and there is no evidence at this point. Like We don't know. We're uh, like did the Democrats in 2018 turn out new voters or were they just turning out general election voters in a midterm year? You know, a lot of it was the latter. Right. And so, so, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't really show much for, for being able to expand the pool for Democrats in a general. So I think, and, and, you know, if you look at the kinds of communities, it was, is in the suburban upper, upper echelon communities, Right. You know, where where the real expanding vote that the Democrats have to do is among black and and lower income voters. And so, you know, are they going to
0: be able to do that? It seems to me that their attitude is, you know, at the end of the day, this is really a race not for our candidate, but against Trump. And people are going to be so incensed by the situation that they'll vote pretty much for any Democrat that we put up as long as his name is not Trump. And that, I think, would probably be fatal. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that attitude is absolutely wrong. Presidential elections end up being about a choice. And this is an issue with Howard Schultz, who we even talked about, but the third parties are just non-voting. I mean, that's the other thing. Democrats in 2018 got a lot of votes from people like me who are frustrated Republicans who wanted to check on Trump. But those votes have to be earned in 2020. This is not a popular position on Twitter. This is not a popular position with Democratic strategists or, or, or Democratic commentators. But... Anti-Trump Republican voters have to be earned, and and if the party goes off the deep end to the left and appealing to you know anti-Israel sem- sentiment and and extreme positions on on abortion and on on environment, you know these voters who voted for Democrats in twenty eighteen are just going to take a pass in twenty twenty, and they'll vote for Schultz or they'll vote for they'll write in somebody or they'll vote for the Libertarian candidate or whatever, and you know that. That could have been that could have been enough. I mean, really. I mean, honestly, like if you look back at 2016, had Hillary done better with Stein voters and Johnson voters in in in
0: Wisconsin
1: and and a couple and of these other voters. states, like, yeah, that yeah, that could have put her over the top. So yeah, I I think that that would be a very mistaken view.
0: Do you think Schultz is going to run? Do you think this? We're looking at the beginning of a the end of the two party system, where a third party is eventually going to emerge out of some frustrated remains of the of the middle?
1: I don't doubt that some third party could emerge. I do feel like the parties are, are, are increasingly moving towards extreme areas that would open this up. I don't feel like it's this time. I think that the loathing for Trump is so great. Like, in some weird ways, like, honestly, a Cruz presidency would have been maybe more appealing to a third party, right? Because, you know, there would have not been this kind of fear of, you know, uh, it would have been more ideologically driven rather than personality and competence and character driven. I do think, though, that if the if the direction continues of the parties that it seems like they're going today, that by 2024, 2028, there could be a real third party candidate. I, I don't I think that Schultz will stick around and kind of see how things go. And see what th- see what things look like I, I don't think he's going to announce in the next month or two one way or the other or he might announce he's going to do it but, but but then change his mind but uh, I, I think that he probably doesn't make a final decision honestly until a year from now maybe more you know wait and see what the political environment looks like in next next spring
0: the hovering Tim now on off the topic really of politics in some ways what does Tim Miller do in order to get his mind? of all of this because frankly a lot of our listeners i thank them always for listening to the podcast i think it's wonderful but frequently it is more politics in a time when politics is everywhere omnipresent no matter what you do what are your tips or tricks (laughs) what do do you do in order to get rid of all of this i'm
1: utterly failing but spend less time on twitter is a good start oh no no not that
0: no no tim please no yeah anything uh, but that
1: baby i'm spending time with my baby oh, so you know you could procreate Could be an option <laughs> uh that is great uh, um, big
0: big thumbs up for procreation ladies thank and gentlemen you.
1: yeah i'm and honestly read fiction i don't and i i i went and purchased a kindle or, or hard books like i got off i used to read books on my phone but now i can't because i get i get tempted to like look at the news or whatever so I got a. I just I have a non-internet-based reading device. One other thing I'm reading right now. It's really interesting. A season on the witch, which is about the 60s and 70s of in San Francisco. And let me tell you, that was some crazy shit. There is a little bit of uh, political of, of, of lack of memory. And, and while Trump is obviously the most insane, out of the norm president we have had in any of in my parents' lifetime. Forget mine. My grandparents' lifetime. But but the political environment. Is the culture is not actually as as extreme as people think because it feels i think that like the fact that it's all in our phone in our hand every day the domestic terror the political upheaval of the 60s and 70s well in a lot of ways was actually you know more extreme and more dangerous than what we are currently living through so that would be another recommendation uh, I've, i entered a rupaul's drag race fantasy league uh, so that's been a nice <laughs>
0: That's amazing. That's who very do you nice. who, who you got? Uh,
1: who do I got? I've got uh, I've got Evie Oddly. She was my first round draft pick. I've got Ariel Versace. Pretty, I'm pretty happy about my draft. I did well last night in the first in the first round. So, you know, you got <laughs> to find joy where you can get it these days. You got to find joy
0: where you can get it. It's really a great show. Not enough people. Appreciate how how it's great hilarious. that show is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a really really fun show. That's a, a an excellent recommendation. Actually, <laughs> do you have any now that we made it clear that getting off Twitter is obviously not at all uh, an option? But do do you have anybody that you recommend our sort of lefty listeners uh, could read in order to not have their mind maybe constantly blown, but instead at least at times helpfully expanded?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, everybody at the Bulwark, I mean, Charlie Sykes has a podcast at the Bulwark that's fantastic. Any of them, though, uh, Sarah Longwell, Jim Swift, uh, them, I'm pre- people would get mad at me for not naming them, Andrew Egger. Uh, Jonah Goldberg at the NRO is probably, I think, the best center right per analyst uh, that uh, he is. He is anti Trump, but uh, very rational about it, and, and I think was very principled and. And, and I always kind of look to him for insight about how the conservative movement is looking at Trump during the campaign and, and since during the Trump presidency. So those are those would be some people I would recommend.
0: When my very limited understanding of who Paul Ryan was, was that he represented everything that conservatives wanted. He was young. He was good looking. He was skilled. He was seen as a policy wonk. I think that that was associated with his name maybe more than I've ever heard it said about anybody else. Again, my limited experience, but he was meant to be a policy wonk. He came up with a tax scheme and also some other schemes, including health care, when the Republicans still had both of the houses. What, in your opinion, the, the conservative movement now, moving forward, have some of those things that Paul Ryan, the super conservative, proposed and implemented not been shown to be somewhat flawed?
1: You're saying that the policies are flawed or that the view of, of Ryan was flawed?
0: Well, I think it's probably, I don't know whether you would agree. In my opinion, it's probably okay. a little bit of both. But what, what is your, because to me, Paul Ryan seemed to embody everything that principled conservatives had hoped for. Yeah. And I, don't, my, uh, and I don't know like if a, that went the way that people expected or wanted.
1: My... Criticism of, of
0: Speaker Ryan,
1: and I I was rather circumspect about that during his tenure because I think he was put in a really tough position. I do understand that, and you know you have to keep this. You know maybe the right thing to do is was to quit, but if you, if you are going to stand on as Speaker, you, know, you have to keep your uh, members in line, and, and you know you have to make certain sacrifices, and, and you know there is a coalition-building element to this. You know I, I don't know that he was as bad as his critics like to make him out to be uh, because of those considerations. Both him and Boehner failed, from my perspective, in the fact that they were unwilling to do the hard things and the hard-needed things that people who sh- who of my ideology, you know, believed were necessary. Even if they were politically risky, and so when you listened through his policy actions, so I do believe he still believes in what he said about fiscal responsibility, you know, et cetera. But, but they only ever did the easy stuff, right? Which is the stuff that doesn't require any sacrifice. They never sold the part about sacrifice, you know, on immigration. They both Boehner and Ryan had a deal on immigration. Like we, we could have you know, had more border security than we have now. We, we could have had, you know, resolved the dreamers. We could have done all of this 10 years ago, 12 years ago, five years ago. There were many opportunities, but they weren't willing to buck people in their party to do the right thing. So, I, you know, I don't know that it, that it demonstrates, that their failures demonstrates a, fall, a flaw in the ideology. I think maybe it demonstrates a flaw in the political salience of the ideology but I, I i don't know that there was ever a really great effort in order to win people over and sometimes you know that's what i'm that's why the that's why the thing that i get the most frustrated in going back to that very first question is the view of politics as a game and that that's where my regrets lie in politics because this stuff isn't a game and sometimes you have to lose you know sacrifice a game to, to for the greater good and, and it doesn't feel like really anybody on either side has done that in a while, but especially on my side. And, and I think that, that Ryan was another person who was guilty of it.
0: Well, despite some of your regrets, or maybe exactly because some of your regrets, Tim, I, I want to thank you for being the kind of conservative that I know all the POTUS Press Pool listeners and also these podcast listeners here on the Pooligans Podcast really enjoy hearing from. Uh, wish you nothing but the best with with the bulwark and and the work that you're doing over there and want to thank you for for coming on and and talking to us about all the things
1: hey thank you it's been fun it's been
0: we'll a do it pleasure. again sometime yeah yeah we'll do absolutely if if this time didn't totally scare you away we're going to do it again and <laughs> nah, we're going to get an update on your it was good day.
1: well we'll see we'll see what my twitter mentions look like after <laughs> after this post <laughs> and then we'll decide okay sounds good all right we'll see it
0: all right take care tim thanks bye